imagine a village that is, uh, you know, on uh, on a river and and doing its thing and people living their lives in the way that it does. And and one day, you know, uh, somebody looks out and there's somebody sort of struggling and beginning to drown floating down the river. And like any good hearted person would, um, you know, sort of shouts and yells and jumps in and saves this person, brings them back to shore and, you know, wraps them with a blanket and starts to take care of them. And um, you know, no sooner do they uh, have that person comfortable on the side of the river and lo and behold, there's another person sort of floating and struggling and beginning to drown in the river and jumps in and saves them and more and more people begin to float down the river. And so as to keep up with the challenge, the village and all the people there do the uh, appropriate organizing accordingly of, hey, you guys, you jump in and keep bringing these people and we'll focus on getting blankets and we'll wrap around and this person can talk to them about, you know, where they're from and how to get them back and, and more people keep floating down the river and the village gets better and better and more and more organized at getting people out of the river, getting them wrapped in a blanket and pushing them back up to where they should go. And of course, you can imagine a long and eloquent telling of that story and ultimately leading to when is it and who is it that at some point says, what the hell is going on upriver and why are all of these people floating down here and drowning? Um, and it is sort of that classic solution-oriented perspective of the marching upriver towards the root cause of a situation to try and meaningfully and intelligently be part of real answers. Um, that is what we want to be part of. That was Chris Hartman, who's the founder of Headwater Food Hub and the Good Food Collective in Rochester, New York. You're listening to Rust Belt Startup. This is a podcast full of long-form conversations with educators and founders and artists, people that are building unconventional lives in unconventional locations. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Ryan Miller. And this week, this is, a, this is a conversation that I've been sitting on for a few months now because I just felt like it is so good. I'm, I've been waiting for the, the perfect time to, to put this thing out. And, uh, and I, think, I think now's the time. We're, we're, we're in the garden and we're, we're picking the tomatoes and things are ripe and we're, we're understanding the deliciousness that is local produce and things that are grown in the earth that is close to us. And um, so this is a conversation that, that is, is very much about food and food systems, but it's also uh, a journey that Chris takes us on uh, from his role in living with nuns on a working farm through his role in creating uh, robust farmers markets to trying to figure out how do we repair and build a robust and responsible food system in this country? What does that look like? It's a big problem. And Chris is a, a, an amazing individual. I left this conversation wanting to just drop everything and come work with him uh, on this project. Uh, Headwater Food Hub is just outside of Rochester, New York, and, and Chris is someone who's part founder, part uh, philosopher and academic, and part farmer. And we, we get into all of those different areas in this conversation. So I'm going to just jump right into it. This is my conversation with Chris Hartman of Headwater Food Hub. Yeah, so, and actually the way in which my uh, food and farming and sustainability focus began was uh, through an experience at college. Um, I went to college down in the Hudson Valley, and after starting as a physics major, um, I transitioned to education uh, with the uh, sort of the long-term career goal of uh, being involved in, in education in, in some fashion or another, youth development, uh, not necessarily a classroom teacher, mm -hmm. but excited about a variety way in, of a variety of ways in which kids um, are engaged in interesting experiences, whether it's sort of wilderness-oriented summer camp or mm -hmm. activist-oriented community service projects. Um, just had a strong interest in, in sort of focusing in on and, and working within those realms. Uh, but interestingly enough, at college, I got an internship at a farm mm -hmm. um, that actually operated as an educational place. That was my hmm. entrance there, um, but was a real working kind of small homestead style farm. Uh, it was run by these three nuns, Sisters of the Sacred wow. Heart Order, and they had, you know, sort of the classic setup, a 
three or four cows, a couple of which were being hand milked, uh, a small flock of sheep, a vegetable garden, a little orchard, uh, and school groups would come out uh, during the school year and you know learn about farming or colonial life or yeah. dairy, you know science, whatever it might be. And then in the summer, they ran sort of summer camp style, live and work on the farm sort of things. Interesting. So, so yeah, I got an internship there mainly because I could get credit doing it. Mm -hmm. And I was always kind of a hands-on learner oriented guy, um, and went to that farm to learn about out of school educational activities. And I ended up falling in love with farming. Was that farm that the nuns ran when you say it was a working farm was that a farm where was that sustainable uh in terms of like from an income perspective were they making enough to make a living or was the, was the edu- did they need the education part as well to kind of make that go yeah no it was absolutely funded by the education mm-hmm. activities and the either the tuition quote unquote based part of of running those programs and or the grants or philanthropic dollars to support those programs and actually my the the way the story unfolds I ended up um well this this you know we could just focus on the the years (laughs) at Sprout Creek Farm which is the name of that farm in the Hudson Valley does it still exist still exists yeah um and it, I ended up living and working there for more than eight years after college, and wow. it became a, a significant part of my life. Um, and uh, and there's all sorts of fun uh, fun adventures that we had along that way. But basically, uh, at, at college, I ended up continuing to do internships there throughout my years at college, and then ultimately did my a thesis project designing a residential program for high school students during the school year um, that we called the Institute for Social and Environmental Awareness. Okay. And they were uh, high school students that applied from around the country um, to come to this program. And then they lived and worked on the farm for two weeks, mm-hmm. did the chores, cooked together, worked together, formed community in that setting, um, and then engaged in a variety of discussions and activities and, um, you know, more school-based type things around social and environmental justice. And, uh, and so that was sort of my thesis project and the first significant sort of uh, residential older student farm-oriented program mm-hmm. that, that was run at Sprout Creek. And basically, after graduation, I got hired to, you know, continue to run Go programs do that. like that and, and expand their, their So that was like very that. entrepreneurial, just by, entrepreneurial by default, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways. And, I, and that's how my, interestingly enough, my career as an educator, which I have had now mm-hmm. for uh, a couple of decades, um, that it is very much unfolded in, as you describe, uh, an entrepreneurial way like that. Uh, I don't know if that's the word I would have used then or sure. necessarily always now, but in that sort of project-based uh, action mm-hmm. research uh you know, uh, creating, solving problems. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and being excited about and intrigued by, um, enhancing and building on ideas and taking things in, in new directions. What was it about the farm? You said you fell in love with farming at, at Spring Creek. It was, Sprout, right? Creek. Sprout Creek. So was there a particular aha moment or was it just, was it working with animals? Was it working with your hands? What was it where you just said, this is pretty fantastic. Yeah. I think uh, there wasn't necessarily one huge aha moment, but I can definitely pick, you know, pick a handful of routines that started to become part of my life Mm -hmm. while living and working there that that felt right and, you know, good. An example, a favorite one being uh, in the dairy barn, you know, sunrise and up through the windows, um, hand milking a handful of Jersey brown cows and um, just the, the smells and the sounds and the routine and the tangible aspect mm-hmm. of what you what need you to do. accomplish mm-hmm. and how you do it. Um, it felt great. But as I often talk about in farming, I mean, I think one of the things that's really, really connected me right at the beginning there was, um, you know, the sort of renaissance 
people it required to to really do that well mm. um, as I often say you know being a farmer is is about being a, an ecologist a soil scientist mm-hmm. and an, a veterinarian a mechanic an electrician a plumber a carpenter you're sort of engaged in all sorts of activities and designing and thinking and strategizing in all kinds of ways um, and I think right from the get-go that mm-hmm. that intrigued me and I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the adventure. Do you think that there's anything, I, I mean, I don't know if, if you'd agree with this. I don't know if I agree with this, but, you know, we did as a, as a species, ag, like that's what you did. We did agriculture for a long, long time. Do you think that there's anything that's just kind of residual and baked in to us about, about you know, you went right to the sound of, and the smells and like, you know, you haven't experienced that before. Is, is that, was that a new thing for you? Or do you think, I don't know, well, where does that come from? Because I feel the same thing when right. you get out, we get out in nature or we get, you know, maybe it's, it's just something where we're connecting with other people in a different way or other organisms in a different way. Do you think that there's any, this may be just way off base, but I was just <laughs> curious if there's anything to it, you think? I, I'm sure there is. Um, and, you know, I think anthropology is sort of that other discipline I mm-hmm. half wished I had sure. sunk my teeth into in some ways. Um, but, no, I, I know there's some ancient, inherent, instinctual uh, love and interest associated with both, mm-hmm. you know, nature and, and ecosystem and our kind of moving through that, as well as... F- agriculture and food um but i but i don't know i mean for me i it it was always very much around the kind of purposeful and meaningful work um that that is and and there i know there is you know a a history and a psychology that that feels very real and rooted Mm -hmm. as far as the the work and effort that goes into you know meeting you and your family or and or your communities basic needs of of food water Mm -hmm. and shelter there's something that feels when you're given the chance to do that within the context of that work is appreciated that work is needed Mm -hmm. um that work requires collaboration and and people uh doing it together there's something that feels right about Mm -hmm. that and and very rewarding and farming you know it just it 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 brings that to the table in a very very real very active way uh, so Sprout Creek Farm was my active farming mm-hmm. um, experience, and, and that obviously that was dairy farming, although we had a lot of different things okay. and a lot of other animals going on at that place. When And, and basically, I, I lived on the farm. When I first moved there after college, I moved into the house with the nuns. I lived with these three nuns no for way. the first year. And what was that a, like? A variety of great stories there. It was amazing. Um, the, these women changed my life in all kinds of important ways. They were really uh really fascinating people to me really um intelligent and amazing educators um both with the students we worked with but i could feel it with me as well in fact this this one woman's sister sue rogers i tell this story a lot as i continue to work with the staff and whatnot she was sort of my direct uh overseer and and trainer as it were Mm -hmm. as i got involved in the educational programs at sprout creek and we ran this one program called Colonial Days, which every fourth grade uh, class in our surrounding mm-hmm. districts would come and do this hands-on Colonial Day-like experience at the farm. Loved the program as we were conceiving it and all this kind of fun role-playing, colonial mm-hmm. life. And they got new names and put into family groups mm-hmm. and did all these chores around the farm. And then, you know, you'd run that program for a couple of years and you'd do the 64th grades every right, year and right, get right. this. And it became this sort of standing joke and eventual experiment ground of how do we keep this new and fresh. And mm-hmm. Anyways, when she trained me in that project, we I sat on a stool. This is almost old school sounding, but she's such a progressive forward thinking mm-hmm. educator. It, it, I think she really balanced this well. But she literally made me sit on a stool in that classroom and watch her do it for like six or seven days. When you know, and and again, I'm you know going to this good college mm-hmm. and I'm all yeah. excited and whatnot. And I'm just like, come on, we're making gingerbread with third grade and fourth grade <laughs> students. Like, um, yeah. but she would make me watch every day, and she'd have like specific questions at the end of like you know at this and she would ask me to ask three specific questions and just had this very mentor trainee approach and then when it was my turn to do it she sat on that stool and watched me for like two weeks and grilled me at the end of it all and again the whole time I was like 
gingerbread, fourth graders, come on, mm-hmm. I got this. It just needs to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, man, I still look back on that. And again, I think about it as we try and grow this business here and create good, good support and leadership. And um, that, that, that training, the amount of learning and support and mentoring and feedback she gave me, I just see it as such an, a solid approach to leadership. And um, anyways, I don't know why. why that, well, did why you, did you up, take that? I mean, you the, said you, your original reaction, that was, why am I doing this? Why am I doing Now you look back and say, well, well that was good. Was it, did you not understand that, um, what or why she was doing? Or was it weird? Did you feel like you were I don't know, back in third grade? I mean, what was no, it about? I knew it? what, she, I totally knew what she was doing and I actually really appreciated it okay. at the time. I think it's my own, you know, my own impatience, you know, that was just like, no, I get, I yeah. know what you're doing, Sue, and this is great, but mm-hmm. I got it. But she would, she forced me through it. And I do think what, what I saw and it not, you know, it didn't take years to look back. Mm-hmm. It was, it was sort of right away. What I realized along the way is like, wow despite my sort of intellectual in my head, yeah, no, I know that we don't have to go through the motions. I mm-hmm. get it already. Sort of as a classic, um, you know, short-sighted and lack of experience view on the the real important part of, of methodically moving through all of that and absorbing all of the lessons, known or unknown, um, ahead of time, but allowing yourself to experience and reflect and digest all of that. Um, so I, I knew what she was doing in that classic sort of cocky young kid mm-hmm. way, I think. And I don't really realize that despite knowing that, um, there was still great value in experiencing all of it and value that, you know, turns out I didn't even know at the beginning of it. Um, and it, I think some of this is more personal, you know, it fit mm-hmm. well with my, you know, and I hint at this just a second ago, as far as the impatience of wanting yeah. to get go, I, I tend to lean forward and, and barrel on through things. And, um, it has been one of my life reflection, learning enhancement type things to, um, really try and step back and think, um, more mindfully, uh, when possible about the, the kind of available learning in, in all of the doing that we're doing so as to, um, so as to speed up that feedback loop Hmm. and and really do things better sooner. Are there, um, you know, habits or, or routines or things that you've carried with you from that experience that you picked? I mean, so, so when I think when I was in college, I did a, a short, Stay. I think it was like three or four days at a monastery. I'd never been to a monastery before mm-hmm. and uh, hung out with the, um, the monks there. It was actually, I went to college in Ithaca, so it was around, mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. upstate. I can't remember where it was, but yeah. um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the adherence to um, routine and um, pace. Mm-hmm. And there was something... As an impatient college student, mm-hmm. you know, day one, I'm like, this is too slow. Mm-hmm. But there was something also by day two, day three, there's something very beautiful about that. Yeah. Um, are there any any things that you still do? I know you kind of said being mindful of, of that that experience, but are there any you know daily rituals or habits that you picked up there that you still kind of adhere to? Oh yeah, I I think there's all kinds. Um, Again, that those were really rich years for me on on the learning. Uh, so many different people that I uh, met and interacted with. So many habits and, and um, you know approaches to the world that I tried to pick up, if if not successfully picked up. Uh, one of the things that I know has always impacted me was not just from you know living with with the nuns and the the people and learning of, of becoming an educator there. But again, the, the farming and dairy farming specific, uh, and I'll talk about this a lot these days, or, or, or I have talked about this a lot. Um, the, the morning and evening chores aspect to dairy farming, I found to be such a, a fantastic routine. I think generalizably for people, but certainly for me specifically, the, um, the very uh, the, the very routine of uh, and slowness um, and uh, pattern kind of associated with that work and um, indeed in doing it in partnership with this herd of animals and having mm-hmm. um, that component to it as well add add this whole additional layer. Um, you know, I found that to be really, uh, really helpful structure for the day and, and a really neat way, particularly, I think, in my 
um, in my head, a, a really interesting way to organize how I'm getting things done and mm-hmm. when I'm getting things done. So for me, I and I still hold on to this despite the fact that I am not a dairy farmer mm-hmm. anymore, this sort of morning chunk of time, the sort of two to three hour early in the morning to kind of before breakfast uh, as a kind of a, a very uh, a very effective time frame for a certain type of work and a very efficient routine that I get in. And similarly, sort of something that is very productive, but similarly uh, fits well within the time frame of sort of the end of the day and finishing things off. And Can you talk about what some of those things are? Well, it's, you know, it, as much as I loved the early morning uh, dairy barn routine, as I, as I mentioned, for me, has transitioned at this point um, to to more of a, a desk and a computer mm-hmm. time, but there is for me something very uh, very productive five to seven in the morning when the the house is still dark and the kids are still asleep and um, nothing has urgently started to unfold mm-hmm. for the day. Um, that is when I tend to try and get my focused on computer uninterrupted time mm-hmm. done, and I have a a very chore-like routine to filling my cup of coffee and spreading out my piles of paper and opening up my necessary things and banging through the the, the work that needs to be done. Um, and then at the end of the day, at this point in my life, I tend to be at the hub in some form or another. Um, and, you know, sort of like any good shift, I like a, a general clean up and close down aspect mm-hmm. to, to my space or my projects in a way that tries to bring some some closure as well as steps forward in, in the general What process. time does that usually start? Um, you know, and I'm... I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, uh, I, I, I'm describing myself in a way that doesn't totally fit right now because I also live a very hectic yeah, life of yeah. time. It's not quite as consistent as chores and sadly I don't have cows moving, moving outside of the yeah. gate to, to let you know, to force myself <laughs> to keep the schedule. Yeah. But, um, you know, I tend to start early in the morning and then, you know, depending on how things are going at the hub, uh, try and wrap up somewhere between, you know, five and seven mm-hmm. as well and, and head home. Mm-hmm. Like that. So how'd you move on from Sprout Creek Farm and, and what was the next what was the next chapter here? Yeah, so um, like I said, Sprout Creek Farm was a uh, deep dive into sustainable ag, local food system work and and really meeting not only a lot of the people at, at our farm, but at, you know involved in that type of work throughout New York and, and the Hudson Valley specifically. So full of ideas, full of interest, full of excitement. Um, but also I'd spent six years living and working on the farm there. We actually had built ourselves a, a small cabin. My wife and I, we got married on the farm there. One of the nuns married us. And, um, it's convenient. We, yeah, indeed. <laughs> it was beautiful. Uh, we built a little solar-powered cabin off the grid in the woods and lived uh, lived off the grid for five years while working on the farm. Um, but very much started to get interested and excited about all of the things going on within local foods, uh, activities, and projects. Um excited about those things and interested in moving out of the farm specific world and and into other areas was of, your, of is your wife in this world too my wife at this point was living on the farm but she was actually she uh, is a potter an artist by training um, and she was running a tile uh, oh, tile making business in town living on the farm and, awesome. and working on that awesome. yeah um so, but both of us grew up actually in the Rochester area. We started dating in high school, actually. Wow. Um, and so I've known each other for a long time. And so, yeah, we were interested in moving on from Sprout Creek Farm, interested actually in moving back to the hometown, Rochester, mm-hmm. um, interested in starting our family uh, of our own, and interested actually in moving into the city, moving into an urban environment um, and uh, kind of shifting gears in, in that way in life and, and jumping into um, that sort of adventure. So we actually moved back up to Rochester. Um, we, uh, we bought a house in the South wedge, which was at the time sort of a, the, uh, an emerging fun little artists and hipster oriented mm-hmm. hotspot in, in Rochester. Um, 
and got involved in uh, a variety of, of different food related activities associated with just for starters, m- you know, meeting our own needs as far as sourcing mm-hmm. food. So, you know, we were, became members of a CSA and we were part of a, a raw milk buying club and we were, uh, you know, part of this little meat buying club mm-hmm. activity that happened on somebody's front porch. And, you know, again, I think like a lot of people who were interested in organic and, and sustainable good foods, we were sort of running around full-time job style trying to source and create and get to know um, all of the people we needed to 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 pull that together. Um, At some point in the loosely aha-ish like moment, um, it occurred to my wife and I and a few other people we were, um, you know, close friends with and, and talking a lot about food with, it occurred to us that, boy, wouldn't it be great if we had a producer only sustainable oriented farmers market right here in our neighborhood and instead of driving all over the place to gather up all of these sorts of things we could try and bring this group of farmers together and attract a whole lot of other people to create a really vibrant and really economically viable if not even attractive marketplace for organic farmers to participate in and you know this is in and around the the at the time the Rochester farmers market of course was in great action, but very few, if any, other farmers markets uh, sort of in the area. And I love the Rochester Public Market. It's a fantastic place and such an important part of a food system in many ways. But it is not necessarily an easy place to be a small organic farmer and try and, quote unquote, compete with the um, you know dollar box of tomatoes sure. next to you that's sure. being dumped on the market. So, um, you know, this concept of a producer only market that was really uh, focusing on small and mid-sized producers and had an organic focus um, seemed like a really exciting project. And indeed, we started to put together uh, an advisory committee of both farmers and community organizers that um, were associated with food or interested in sustainability and gathered neighborhood residents and started to really put together the project and um, the energy and the excitement and the interest in it all just just kind of quickly took off and um, we we launched the South Wedge Farmers Market about a year after uh, living in the neighborhood it was 2007 or so Um, and you know really if I were to point out one very specific moment in which the Headwater Food Hub story began. Mm-hmm. It was sort of the launching of that farmers market, and the the next eight or nine years mm-hmm. that it's now been of us from that project, continuing to experiment, reflect, learn, and act according to how can we continue to expand our impact and and grow this project. Did you know? I mean, you didn't know how to do this. No. I mean, who were the other folks that were? On the, on the team, so to speak. Did, did they have any expertise or was this very much like we're experiencing a problem for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. We just want to kind of find mm-hmm. a solution to it. This sounds good and throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks or, or were you modeling this after something? Yeah, so um, yeah, I think, well, great question. And we did, you know, I think w- w- part of why I would look back and point to that moment as a significant uh, starting point in a lot of ways, despite all the farming experience in the past, um, we took that project very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was, to some degree, one of the first most important parts of how it led to where it led. Um, we wanted it to be a really successful, really meaningful project. And I, again, from the, the experience at Sprout Creek Farm and other projects I've been part of, I knew what a successful farmer's market looked like mm-hmm. and what it could and should be for a neighborhood and for the farmers participating. And um, and indeed, at the time, it was easily, uh, it was easy to start to get connected to the broader, you know, organizations, listservs, webinars or whatever mm-hmm. that we're talking about, you know, neighborhood-based, mm-hmm. producer-only farmers markets and things like that. So we, we took it seriously. We learned and researched a lot of different approaches. And again, as I mentioned, we put together this advisory committee. And I, I, as somebody who hadn't been necessarily involved in managing and or starting a lot of projects in this way, the the forced activity of, okay, we want to take this serious. What does that look like? We had, uh, you know, the 
a lot of people that we were able to kind of reach out to, sit down with, what does that look like? What are some good advice? What are some best practices? Um, putting together the advisory committee, which was an, an early on piece of advice, was again, one of the best moves we did. And, and, and in that you know, focus of trying to take ourselves seriously, we really reached out to a lot of VIP-ish types to say, hey, like you to be part of this, mm-hmm. you know, Mayor of Rochester, you know, mm-hmm. Director of NOFA, uh, you know, Cornell Cooperative Extension Executive Director, uh, you know, key economic development people, key farming people, neighborhood leaders and organizers. So, you know, I think the 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 process of putting the advisory to committee together, the process of taking it seriously, the process of really putting a lot of effort uh, into it ourselves and with all of the people that had become part of the project really led to a, a really energetic launch of that project and a lot of momentum for us in, in the local food scene. The, the, the first year was a very exciting, very, again, uh, expansive year as far as all of the projects that unfolded from there. Um, but it also became sort of one of those early on reflective things of as great as this is, particularly for the community that, you know, these farmers markets are in. Um, it is still a little bit of a boutique mm-hmm. you know, a piece of a food system. Are we really dealing with, you know, some of the, the broader prop, yeah. systemic issues or are we just coming up with yet another mm-hmm. fun, well-branded project sure. that's pushing us forward? Important good work but are we really Mm -hmm. are we really sinking our teeth into the issue here and at that point I was increasingly interested in and becoming a student of kind of the broader uh, to some degree more academic view of all of this so looking at data thinking about the system and and everything going on and um, so indeed we we even had the numbers that we would talk about at the time you know is even if we could get this market and we started a winter's version Mm -hmm. of it that first year too in collaboration with other markets but you know it was our feeling even if we could get this farmer market network vision unfolding in the robust way we imagined we were looking at best two to three percent of you know food expenditures mm-hmm. by individuals, let mm-hmm. alone institutions yeah. and businesses and retailers broadly. And um, so, kind of, you know, like uh, like many things, I think we, we we sort of recognized the value that it was doing, continued to be interested in growing and enhancing it in the ways that it that made sense, but very excited to start to think about, okay, well, thing. what else and w- what can we build on from here? And, and as far as Food Hub, mm-hmm. which is obviously the story we're heading towards sure. here of Headwater Food Hub, probably the very first moment that uh, the concept Food Hub occurred to me and this was before Food Hub was a term, mm-hmm. so I was not even using that language in my head. But we used it early on in our thinking, and we we talked about um, about the concept in this way. It was is 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 problematic as the farmers market felt as as a model as far as really impacting a broader system. One of the things that sort of became obvious early on is like, wow, wait a minute. Um, I got 20 farmers all driving to the same parking lot every week. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a way I can start to build on this as an asset Mm -hmm. and start to move more food into the community. From their perspective, too, it's not it's not a it's a sunk cost, too. Right. Like they're they're going they're already there. They're not going to another market. Yep. And they're all selling tomatoes. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, again, without the concept food hub, uh, clearly in words, we started to say, okay. Okay, what are some of the creative, innovative projects we can think about that build on our farmers market as a as a hub, as it were, um, and and allow us to take on other things? And and so that began um, the thinking that ultimately led to our first project, which was the Good Food Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, and therein lies a bit of the sustainability strategy. How do these projects? And I think this is kind of fundamental to one of our goals at Headwater. Um, you know, this this uh, this project has to be um, not only an important and meaningful contribution to creating good good change in the world. Um, it needs to be it needs to be doable by those that are committing and dedicating so much of of what they've got into it and when i say doable i mean all of the different pieces that 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 
that that takes, mm-hmm. which is um, it's it's meaningful. It's aligned with what you feel capable and excited to contribute, and it, it brings a level of enjoyment and satisfaction and contentment that allows you to keep pushing forward in that way. That's you know one of the reasons that I, I was interested in, in talking to you as well as as I've been doing research on companies or individuals, um, not just across upstate New York, but different cities, um, what we would consider the Rust Belt, Mm -hmm. you know, out through Ohio, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that's been kind of frustrating to me is that when I'm talking to you, you immediately go to how do we, how do we build something that's sustainable, but, but deserves to exist, Mm -hmm. right? That, Mm -hmm. that, that creates meaning for all the people. And we've come up with a term for this, right? Social enterprise, but like that should, I think at its core, just be enterprise. There's so many, as I've been researching people to talk to, there's so many people that their thing, their big idea is a new way to sell Google ads, or it's Mm -hmm. a new, like it, it, Mm -hmm. no offense to them, but it's not really making earth better. Right. And it doesn't mean we all have to be, um, we don't have to all go a hundred percent of, there should be a nugget of, right. of truth to, um, or, or meaning. And I think whatever you do, and, and that really comes through in, in the conversation that, that we, we had last time we met. I was just, yeah, no. And uh, yeah. And there's a lot of really interesting parts of what you're talking about. And a lot of, um, a lot of pieces I've tried to think about it when I, put on my educator's hat um you know i think for myself personally i've tried to figure out how do i be part of you know positive change Mm -hmm. in the world on just sort of a basic level and if i were to kind of walk through my process of thinking about you know how i define that what i feel capable and, and talented towards contributing to that and how will i measure the success of that you know all of those different pieces you know the the way in which we've dis- defined success and the values that sort of you know create our metrics in which we look at success i think there's room for improvement mm-hmm. to say the least <laughs> yeah, on as a society yeah. what are we really setting ourselves up for and, mm-hmm. and how are we measuring that and you know when i think about you know part of the headwater story um early on as we were getting into this was okay well we could start a, a not-for-profit organization mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a no-brainer mm-hmm. I, it's a, my whole career to date had been it's what the defaults would be exactly right? yeah. it's like, oh we're mission oriented sure. we're trying to do good da 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 and somewhere in the process and we actually came very close to pulling that all off we had a, an attorney engaged we were writing our 501c3 application and all the rest of it and somewhere in that process i came to the opinion um, as many others have that we, we don't need more not-for-profit organizations trying to support and facilitate a, an economy around local sustainable food we need new businesses and new business models being that economy um, around local sustainable food. And for us, that was this launch into the kind of social entrepreneurial uh, B Corp status that mm-hmm. we now have of, hey, we need to prove this as an economically viable thing. And we want to start to dismantle this weird societal phenomenon that we have that business is sort of one thing and it's profit oriented and it does whatever it does Mm -hmm. in the world to do that and then we'll have this other not-for-profit sector that's going to focus with philanthropic dollars to fix all of the negative consequences of business Mm -hmm. it sort of seems like a really inefficient way to actually move forward as a society and if we could start to think about how does business do the important things services products etc that need to be done that people want to buy and or consume do that in a way that benefits all of us as best as one can and marches us forward. And so, how have you solved that? <laughs> <laughs> or I guess that's 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 really the crux of what Headwater. Is. You're trying to solve that, right? I mean, you're you're solving a problem through commerce, essentially. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you talked a little bit about the Good Food Collective. Could you give us the thirty thousand foot? What that was, and then 
yeah. want to get into this amazing facility and, and what you guys do. Yeah. So the, the launch of the Good Food Collective, as I mentioned, was out of the South Wedge Farmers Market. And it was really, again, looking at the, the limitations that the market had and yet the asset of 20 farmers all coming to the same parking lot. So, um, you know, I was very familiar with the CSA model and concept, had been member of many, had run a few in the past. And um, so we were really interested in the CSA model. But again, like the farmer's market, sort of recognize some of the limited nature mm-hmm. of that model as far as really connecting with a lot of people and, and being a, a viable model for a lot of farmers. So we started to look at a, a kind of multi-farm CSA concept where instead of one farmer focusing on 40 or so different crops, what would it look like to have 12 or 20 farmers focus on the crops that really work well for their farm, for their soils, for their personalities, for their infrastructure, whatever, and collectively put all of the food together that would go into a a whole robust CSA-like offering. Um, So that was the concept. And again, that, that piece of the puzzle was how do you make this more accessible to a lot more farmers? And thus, how do you create a a bigger pool, a larger volume in which to thus go out and connect to a whole lot more eaters? So on the on the convenience, quote unquote, side for eaters, we felt similar innovation needed to happen. How do we allow the CSA like model not be the drive out to a farm a half an hour away or know the random person that does it in their garage or whatever it might be? How do we really connect people in convenient, accessible, enjoyable ways? So, you know, we innovated a variety of different workplace delivery and community-based distribution models and and basically have been unfolding and experimenting that project all along. We got in that very first year out of the Southwedge Farmers Market, uh, put together a sort of bootstrapped website and concept, got 100 people to sign up as members, and they were all at five different area businesses that we had talked into Hmm. sponsoring this program uh, Mm -hmm. for their employees. And indeed, using the farmer's market as a hub, the farmers that were participating in the Good Food Collective that very first year, we had all cropped plan together who's growing what mm-hmm. and when's it coming in on which week and et cetera. And, and although we had crop planned that, it then becomes a weekly sure, conversation sure. of what is, is actually ready, ready yeah. and all the rest of it. But they would bring all of their goods to the farmer's market that they hoped to sell at the market and they would bring whatever they were contributing to the Good Food Collective along with them. Myself and a handful of high school students that I was teaching as well at the time would set up a tent behind the farmer's market next to Mm -hmm. the parking lot. And we would take all of that food and pack it into 100 bags. And we put it into a trailer that I had been using as my contractor trailer because I operated as a carpenter for a few years to pay the bills as well. Mm -hmm. We insulated that trailer, made it into a little refrigerated unit. We would pack all of those 100 shares into the trailer. I'd drive it a few blocks down the road to my house at the end of the farmer's market, snake an extension cord through my kitchen window and (laughs) plug in the trailer for the night. And the next morning, I would leave to deliver those 100 shares before I had to be to school for my job. Um, and it was a classic kind of bootstrap yeah. you know, can we test this out? Does it work? And how mm-hmm. would, how would we make it, a, make a go of it? Um, and we got that hundred members, like I said, successfully delivered, learned a ton. Um, at the end of the year, uh, after paying all of the farmers for all the food that they grew, m- many of them much more than they successfully sold at the farmer's market, you know, for that yeah. year. We had, and not paying myself or anybody else anything, we had $4,000 left in the bank, and I bought a used diesel truck for $3,800 and $200 worth of John Deere green paint, Um, (laughs) and I painted it and turned it into our first distribution truck, which we we used the following year. And again, classic bootstrapper, we had 100 members that first year, 250 the second year, 500 the third year, 1,000 the fourth year. We started just the summer classic season we added fall winter and spring we started with just fruit and vegetables we added meats eggs cheeses yogurts etc and and we've really expanded the good food collective into at this point a year-round subscription style membership virtual market table um, highly flexible highly accessible fantastic offering of of local sustainable how did that change the life of the farmers you were working with. I mean, obviously they're selling more stuff, but like, what did, 
what did they have to do to adjust or what was that what was that like getting them to adopt a new model or wasn't mm-hmm. was it very easy for folks to buy into um, it was you know different and unique for each farm mm-hmm. depending on sort of what their history was what their current activities and and obviously what their future goals were uh, there's a handful of farmers that we started with uh, that first year at the good food collective who aren't farming anymore mm-hmm. um, and there's a handful of farmers that we have been next to and been able to have the, the privilege way. to watch grow and expand and learn um, and there's a handful of farmers that were part of it then continue to be part of it now and they're not that you know yeah. they're sort of plugging along the way they always have and, and enjoy this as a stable market um, so it's hmm. we've really impacted people in a variety of different ways and it's it's grown and and you know enhanced over the years in ways that um, has continued to try and focus on how does this how does this really benefit small and mid-sized farmers and how does this really help people connect to the food they're trying to source and, and ultimately, how does it help Headwater Food Hub grow as a as a viable business? Obviously, do you think um, you know one? I, I've I've worked with several um, farmers over the last year or so um, in in my role at, at Think, and the conversation has typically been around marketing. Mm-hmm. And I think um, one of the interesting and we're, we're asking this of all businesses, right? Like, I don't care if you're a sub shop or whatever. You're now a mar- you're now a media company, mm-hmm. right? You're a you're yeah. a mechanic. You're a media company too, yeah. and and you're a farmer. I, I get the sense that there's some people that they just want to farm. Yeah. And is yeah. that what you're seeing, or are you seeing a lot of people are embracing like, I want to farm, but yeah, I want to I want to I want to be a farm blogger, whatever. Right. You know, like yeah. we're asking a lot of people to compete now. Yeah. Does this pro- this kind of provides a way where if you really want to farm, you can farm. Yeah, no. And uh, so, yeah, we, the great question and something we think about and talk a, a lot about. And truthfully, I think if I were to look at the farms that aren't farming right now, it's the ones that um, tried to take on everything or really came at it with that that experience. Not to say that that's not doable or mm-hmm. that's not a very successful model for many, but but yeah, I, so, you know, we talk about this in the sense that, you know, there's a lot going on in the quote unquote farm to table movement. Mm-hmm. And often it's farm in this big, beautiful font and table in this equally big, beautiful font. And two is this sort of little teeny word connecting them that's sort of in the way. Um, and we all prioritize this idea of like, yeah, farmers, they need to get direct access mm-hmm. to that market. And the middleman is this evil, evil yeah. you know, profiteering problem. Um I, I really think that's a, 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 a problematic vision to this kind of future food system that we're interested in working on. And it has the classic, like some CSA or some parts of the CSA model and some parts of the farmer's market model even, it has this uh, small scale um, inability to really impact the broader system um, in, in, in some problematic ways, to, you know, yeah. feel to it. And so the, the, the farmer that's required not only to market it themselves and be hip to this, you know, social media scene that you are going to yeah. want to keep up with, but also is simultaneously calling chefs or buyers to kind of coordinate orders and mm-hmm. deal with the orders and da, da, da. And not that a farmer can't like any business hire people, grow in that way and, and, and engage a staff yeah. and many do. But there's do. So, only so much bandwidth. There is and, only so yeah. much bandwidth. And there is something that I find that is very, uh, you know, for many farmers, people that lean towards that career and do that very well, um, as you described, there is a desire to be able to focus on that and not necessarily a whole lot of patience, desire or or ability sometimes to manage a whole lot mm-hmm. of other people doing the other things mm-hmm. that would happen if you were doing it all. Or the so, budget. Or the budget, yeah. So the, the the concept of the Good Food Collective early on in that similar vein was not every farmer wants to be in a CSA, mm-hmm. not wants to set up the website that's signing people, wants to market and Facebook and this and that, and wants to have 300 people come to their farm to pick up a share. And, you know, it's like that's not necessarily what everybody wants to do. Um, and, in, and, and in that way, 
the Good Food Collective, how do we provide that structure, those systems, and bring the talent and the people and the infrastructure to do that well and focus on that? And how do we let farmers focus on farming and doing what they do well? And together, in a reinterpretation of the quote-unquote middle person, how do we really create partnerships across these different businesses to re-envision a food system where everybody feels good about what's happening, is being paid fairly, and sees a future of, of growth and, and success, however that's defined. And wholesale has had the same way. Um, you know, farm, you know, the, 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 the farmer, like I said, calling 20 different chefs mm-hmm. to take orders, a chef calling 20 different farmers to figure out how to get the weekly things in, it's not a great system. And it leaves these high-end farm-to-table restaurants doing that thing, and then everybody else having to stick with the way it's mm-hmm. done and the big kind of business. How do we start to break that down? How do we start to bring modern-day technologies, efficiencies, and practices to a small, diversified mm-hmm. network of farm producers and create a a future sustainable food system so um to kind of try to try to wind some some things down here uh, a few few questions that i've um that, that may may put a put a bow on this um for, well I, rin told me i gotta ask you how you came up with the name headwater number one <laughs> nice um yeah so um it's uh it's the <laughs> the the name Headwater actually uh, originated in a grad school class I was taking called, uh, that was your classic research methods type class in grad school, um, and the teacher I had was uh, somewhat in this category of action research, uh, super progressive activist oriented type uh, professor, and. Uh, interestingly enough, on the side, a buckwheat farmer. Um, and I knew it right off the bat, and I knew I would like this guy when I showed up to class, and you could see right off the bat he had classic big, gnarly, crooked farmer hands mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of cracked and dirty around the edges. And I was like, man, this guy doesn't look like a, an academic. What's going on here? And um, like, uh, like one of my favorite role models, Wendell Berry out there, he was a beautiful mix between sort of philosopher, farmer, and, and just a very influential guy. Uh, but anyways, one of the books we read in that class was uh, influential to me. It was called Careless Society. I think it was John McKnight wrote it or somebody um, in the bowling alone category of sort of looking at uh, society and where we were at and a kind of harsh critique accordingly. But um, anyways, in the reading of that book that was influential to me on a million levels, we had this one class where uh, the professor was telling this story about um, and, and was using it as a metaphor into the nature of where we're at. And it was specifically a comment around the industry, the economy we had created around taking care of those in need. Um, and that it was uh, in reaction to the percentage of the GDP that is currently produced by uh the professionalization of dealing with people in poverty or the sick or dying or whatever, that we've sort of created a professional class of caregivers and mm-hmm. its money is flowing accordingly. And, you know, um, anyways, he was telling the story of, you know, imagine a village that is, uh, you know, on, uh, on a river and, and doing its thing and people living their lives in the way that it does and and one day you know uh, somebody looks out and there's somebody sort of struggling and beginning to drown floating down the river and like any good-hearted person would um, you know sort of shouts and yells and jumps in and saves this person brings them back to shore and you know wraps them with a blanket and starts to take care of them and um, you know, no sooner do they uh, have that person comfortable on the side of the river, and lo and behold, there's another person sort of floating and struggling and beginning to drown in the river, and jumps in and saves them, and more and more people begin to float down the river, and so as to keep up with the challenge, the village and all the people there do the uh, appropriate organizing accordingly of, hey, you guys, you jump in and keep bringing these people and we'll focus on getting blankets and we'll wrap around and this person can talk to them about, you know, where they're from and how to get them back. And, and more people keep floating down the river and the village gets better and better and more and more organized at getting people out of the river, getting them wrapped in a blanket and pushing them back up to where they should go. 
And of course, you can imagine a long and eloquent telling of that story and ultimately leading to when is it and who is it that at some point says, what the hell is going on upriver and why are all of these people floating down here and drowning? Um, and it is sort of that classic solution-oriented perspective of the marching upriver towards the root cause of a situation to try and meaningfully and intelligently be part of real answers. Um, that is what we want to be part of. And all said and done when the, you know, history books are written or the articles are archived. Um, I don't imagine that any of us have our names specifically in there, but I would like Headwater to be part of the paragraphs that our people were trying to march upriver and create change. And hopefully those paragraphs lead to the chapters of change was created ultimately. But um, the story Headwater is really about, and the food system, I believe, is a, an exceptional version of this, whether it's, you know, nutrition and health, public health crisis associated with food or environmental degradation and pollution problems associated with agriculture or the humane treatment and, of animals and the ethical conversation therein. So many of these little things dance around a uh, a, a bigger and broader conversation that we need to be having about root causes and real change opportunities. The interesting thing is that to jump it forward, going back to your question about like, well, farmers and social media and good branding, um, that story, which, uh, you know, had a huge impact on me when I was sitting in grad school, listening to the professor talk about that. And, um, and I see it as a really uh, exciting component to the intelligent approach we're trying to take here, for better or for worse sometimes. Um, but it is not a particularly quick, easy story right. gleaned from the word. And when you think about branding and all the rest of it, I have plenty of people who say, great story, but I'm not positive that's going to really be captured in your brand, or I'm not sure this will, you know, or whatever. I don't know if that's going to work be. on the Instagram. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, but I like coming back to yeah. it, and I like the team internally being like, this is what we're all signing up for. And I'm not claiming to ha know what the hell is upstream or what, that I'll mm -hmm. even know what the answer is. You just is. know if that we've got to get there. I just know that, my God, we've got to be thinking intelligently mm -hmm. and collaboratively about the real root causes to what's going on and if we're not focused on that we don't have enough time to sort of waste our energy and efforts down here how do you find people that believe what you believe and, and make them a part of this team um at this point um they tend to find us um you know and that sounds like we're bigger than we are um i think it's it, the reality is where it's yeah i'm not Sadly, I wish I could hire so many more people right. And, right. and have just a pool of energetic, talented people working on all of this. Um, we are a small company that is slowly growing. And so, you know, I, for two reasons, we've ended up often hiring people that w somehow we've become connected to. And typically that's because they've reached out to us hey i'm interested in what you're doing i'd love to kind of come learn more mm -hmm. kind of thing and so we get to know each other and or they're they were farming or are farmers or working within some other organization or doing a grad project and are now graduated whatever it is um they've sort of come and connected to headwater and as job opportunities open up i have a short list of people of like man i would love to hire that person if we had a job and the money to do so um so, you know, and again, that sounds like we've got people banging down our door. It's not a ton of people, but we don't have a ton of jobs going sure, there. And, sure. and it's sort of that classic side, too, of like I'm at, we're getting close to a couple of strategic hires, as they say, in the next couple of months and, and really trying to take a, a meaningful step forward this year in, in real growth. Um, and uh, those will be some of the first times we probably put out a broader um, you know, job uh, opportunity, mm -hmm. job description, and I'm very interested to see: Are we able to attract? Who's going to apply yeah. to that? And from how far, or from what other organizations? And will I be surprised at 
um, some of the uh, some of the talent that we're really able to potentially access at this point because of the scale we've gotten yeah. to, or am I going to be a little bit disappointed at we still don't have enough to mm -hmm. offer and we're still not quite meaningful enough to really um, lure Get, we, and attract some talent? Um, and not that not that all these people aren't talented, but. Uh, we have, we have nobody in a job position that has any meaningful experience doing any right, of this. Right. You know, everybody's new to it. Everybody's very everybody's scrappy. Sharp, very yeah. scrappy, but very sharp, very passionate, very excited to move forward. But um, we have never hired anybody that's had meaningful experience in what they're being asked to do here at Hatwater. Um, I guess I should just wind it down. Um, are there... Do you have any advice for people that, food space or not, that are looking to kind of take that, take that jump? Or, you know, I meet a lot of people, we'll, we'll, we'll call them the entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. right? They, they know they want, they know they're not happy where they are. They know mm -hmm. they want to do something, but, but they don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for folks that are kind of struggling with that journey or that are thinking about, taking a plunge in, into that into the unknown I mean the typical advice is go do it right. but I mean I don't know if, the, if there's anything that you've gleaned along the way that might be helpful to yeah well um, you know I, I don't know if I I, I, I wouldn't necessarily just couch this as advice to somebody who's thinking about this sort of thing but you know one piece of the story amongst many others that we have not touched on um, all sorts of interesting components to the tale um, but one one that we haven't touched on is the the struggle and challenge uh, and frustration and hardship uh, that all of this is too and the risk um, you know this is uh, an exciting and fun time we're growing we're optimistic um, but we are also very precarious and, you know, in just kind of jumping into some of the quick, honest components uh, of starting and running a business, you know, the things um, that keep me up at night and I am kept up most nights and this is a stressful and hectic and occasionally exhausting life. Um, the things that keep me up are... A, we have not made any money yet in mm -hmm. our trajectory and in our path. We have a whole lot of really excited, really talented, really energetic people, but everybody is underpaid and there is a limit at some yeah. point at which that won't continue and won't last for everybody and what they're hoping to do with their lives, myself included, and the other things that keep me up. I'm eight years invested into this project. I There's no doubt in my mind I've built a quote-unquote great resume sure. <laughs> in doing all of this, but... I've got, you know, kids that I plan to send to college and I've got a retirement that I hope to have mm -hmm. resources for. And I've got a lot invested in these eight prime career years in this project. And it is quite possible that it will have no financial return. That is a scenario that could unfold, whether it keeps going in some form or has to close down or any of the number of scenarios that entrepreneurs have to consider as possible um you know those those scenarios exist so there my advice you know it's i there's i don't I, I have no regrets and i would not do anything different and even if we had to close tomorrow which by the way we are absolutely not doing and i'm very optimistic about where we're heading but even if we did i would not do it necessarily well, there's some few things I would probably do differently but I, not, mm -hmm. I would not yeah. have not done taken on this project but I don't want to romanticize it and it almost seems romantic to to talk about the hardships that one goes through but it's real um, you know and this is I, I am so grateful to my wife and my children um, I work a lot I'm away a lot and even when I'm home I'm always thinking about this and my phone's always ringing and there's something I'm always supposed to be doing um, I have not made my family, you know, more money or resources towards, you know, us aging and mm -hmm. all of those things. And so, so they've, they've give, you know, they've given a lot to this project as well. And, um, and so it's, it's, 
I don't want to romanticize it. It's hard, and yet it's all going to work out, and that whole thing. I just want to say, yeah, man, this is, this is, it, this is a, a struggle, um, and I put that in the category of sort of like that classic entrepreneurial story. I mean, we were talking briefly about the the uh, um, other stories out there being told about businesses, and and the ones that you know, are sort of the one year and then get this sort of million dollar ramp up investment and then kind of take off. We're eight years. This is our, Mm -hmm. we're pretty sure this is going to be our break even year. Mm -hmm. And then we got this sort of growth trajectory where we see possible profits. If you can make it through this year, you can get to the, yeah. But eight years to get to your break even point is a, a really long long row and and then when I reflect back on it and think about okay if I were to stick with my initial goals which were quite clearly articulated of like I want to be part of good work I want to be part of creating positive change whatever my own self and how I was raised and all the rest of it that is an important part of how I am going to think of myself as successful or not now I also want to make a good living, and I want to be comfortable, and I want my kids to da da da, you know, and all these sorts of things. So, you know, I've I've set all these, and if I were to think back and be like, was this the best path to do all of those things? Jury's out. You know, I I can think of any number of ways and approaches and places I could have even worked, as opposed to started my own company that could have been interesting paths. But, you know, the what ifs or mm-hmm. all the rest of it, it's it's useless to think about. And I'm excited about where we're going. And my gosh, I believe it's going to be possible that I'll be able to not close the doors, but look back on this in 20 years and be like, look what we've done and be really proud of what we created and really excited to be part of the Headwater family that is already far bigger than me and, and the few people that have been going at this from the beginning so you know i think my advice to people is uh yeah yeah i'm still in the do it camp you know in that simple bumper stick and sticker kind of approach but i i also want to just be pretty transparent about i this is put through the ringer i've cried more probably this year than i have in my whole life minus you know zero to two or whatever it is and i've slept less than ever and i've been more stressed and anxious than i would ever want myself to be you know all of these rubs they're real they're totally real um and they don't make me regret it or want me to do differently but but they're there but they're there (laughs) they're totally there What do you think? He's pretty. He's pretty awesome, isn't he? Uh, thanks a lot for, for listening to, to the podcast this week. It's. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you came out and lent me your ears for an hour or so. If you're digging the podcast, I hope you hit that subscribe button. Or if you if you're really uh, digging it, uh, leave us a little review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. We're working on getting into Anchor and Spotify and some other podcast distribution networks soon-ish. So um, so thanks for sticking with me. Um, this is Rust Belt Startup. If you want to hear more interviews and some tactical episodes, you can always uh, get them on Apple Podcasts or visit the website at rustbeltstartup.com. Again, I'm your host, Ryan Miller. Thanks a lot. We'll see you in a couple weeks with a new episode of Rust Belt Startup.